Skullduggery listeners, we just wanted to let you know that this particular episode contains subject matter that some may find uncomfortable, as our guest talks about his experience of torture and sexual humiliation while imprisoned on Guantanamo Bay. And when I first arrived at Guantanamo, I'm happy because I trusted an American justice. Never, never did I believe I would be eight years a prisoner without trial, and that the United States of America would use fear and terror to control me. That's a French actor named Tahir Rahim playing a Guantanamo Bay detainee in a film called The Mauritanian that's been playing on Showtime in recent months. It's a powerful story of a young man named Mohamedou Slahi, who was held for 14 years in Gitmo, accused of being an Al-Qaeda operative who recruited the hijackers for the 9-11 attacks. For a while, Slahi was viewed by the United States government as one of the most significant high-value detainees at Gitmo. And under direct orders from then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, he was subjected to special interrogation methods. He was beaten, kicked, and smashed across his face, subjected to extreme cold and sexual humiliation by female interrogators, and threatened with execution during a boat ride where he was force-fed seawater. Having been tortured, Slahi confessed to whatever the U.S. government wanted him to say until a defense lawyer, Nancy Hollinger, played in the film by Jodie Foster, took up his case, and the prosecutor assigned to bring him to trial refused to do so in protest. Salahi, who withdrew every word of his confession, was finally released and sent home, a reminder about the excesses that still haunt prosecutions of those remaining in Gitmo. He's our guest on today's episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Mike Lizikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So, Clydman, for uh, you and I, and Victoria, for you as well, I'm sure, revisiting the Guantanamo story uh, seems like a blast from the past, something we all lived through for uh, many, many years during the uh, the Bush years and, and indeed after that as well. But when I came across uh, the Mauritanian uh, just channel flicking on um, cable a few weeks ago, I was kind of blown away. I I had forgotten many of the details, uh, just how horrific these enhanced interrogation techniques were, how wrong the uh, U.S. government got it for many of those, for for perhaps a large portion of those who were uh, detained at Gitmo. It also, I remember during one of my trips there, first seeing that big sign that sits right outside the courtroom that was erected to put Gitmo detainees on trial, the big sign saying Camp Justice. And, you know, thinking then, and even more so today, this was about as Orwellian as you could get. Yeah, I read recently that more detainees died in Guantanamo than have been convicted of crimes. 
And, you know, there was something like, I don't know, the total number was, uh, you know, well over 700 detainees. And, you know, some of them are really, really, really bad guys who did uh, terrible things and uh, remain in Gitmo. But the vast majority of them have been released. Um, And, you know, some of them were released and then detained in other countries and since then have been released. Uh, Many of them were just released because they imprisoned people who were not terrorists. And, uh, you know, From I remember... all indications, uh, Mohamedou Slahi is, is, is one of them. But the mindset back then, and it's remarkable, we all remember this, how quickly this happened in the wake of 9-11 was, you know, driven by fear and darker motives as well, I think, is that there were terrorists everywhere, terrorists in our midst. You know, anybody who was picked up had to be a bad guy. And you know, frankly, you know, Mike, uh, we in those, uh, you know, first months and even years after 9-11, uh, we're getting a lot of intel from, you know, law enforcement and intelligence sources um, about uh, suspected terrorists or people who were picked up and you know, we tried to check those things out. Sure, and, and and think about what they had on Slahi. He gets a phone call from bin Laden's sat phone, you know, and then transfers money right after that. And, uh, oh, yeah, and, the, and, and, and also look, I mean, you know, his That's cousin, the kind of thing we would have— Right. That would have been a Periscope in Newsweek, Oh, you no know, question. Right, and his, in, and a, his, in a split second. And his cousin uh, was a guy named Abu Hafs, who— right. Uh, was on was, the Shura Council of Al-Qaeda. Was on the Shura Council and who wrote, who actually wrote the bin Laden's declaration of war. He was bin Laden's Sharia advisor, but also kind of like a speechwriter for him. Um, and so we would have looked at all those connections, as the United States government did, uh, and, you know, made a lot of assumptions. But and we would but, have been wrong. But, but <laughs> that's, that's the, why, but that's yeah. why you don't have a prison camp outside of the reach of the law, right? I mean, and Victoria, the lawyer on this podcast, can speak to that. Yes. Well, I was going to say, that's the first thing. And and like one of the things that this movie does, which I think is so compelling, is it makes clear how persistent and aggressive the lawyers had to be to even, you know, kind of just get the the slightest foothold into the situation. And it took them 16 years to resolve this man's particular case. And... I would note, just in case we forget too soon, there's currently a case involving Guantanamo in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. We are still to this day trying to untangle and unravel the issues surrounding it. But I, I want to ask a question because there's a there's something in the movie that really fascinated me. And Mike, you have been to Gitmo yes. um, s- several times. <laughs> and... There's this one little visual cue in the middle of the movie that that really stuck with me. They show a picture of a gate and they've got a sign up on the gate that deals with penalties that people in Guantanamo can face for injuring iguanas. (laughs) Exactly. It's a $10,000 fine if you injure an iguana in Guantanamo. But if you beat the crap out of a detainee... And uh, torture them for 70 days. Yeah, there's no penalty whatsoever. Yeah. I I, I was struck by the uh, iguana 
uh, sign as well. I mean, I mean, I do remember seeing iguanas in Guantanamo. <laughs> but it's they a great are point. Pretty it's much everywhere. Yeah. It's a great point. If you had done anything, if you had done anything to that iguana in Guantanamo, you... I, I'd be still in Gitmo. They're going to lock me up. But right. I mean, yeah. look, the point is is really important, which is you know people like Mohamedou Slahi been released and and have their freedom. But what kind of accountability? Has there been for the people who were responsible for this, you know, all the way up? Yeah, no, all the way up the chain. But it's worth remembering that what finally got him out was the military prosecutor, Stuart Couch, who refuses to prosecute the case once he reads what was done to Slahi, once he sees how uh, he was tortured and how the case rests on Slahi's confession after that torture took place and how, you know, it's completely, he concludes, it's completely unreliable. And besides which, what the U.S. government did was outside anything authorized by American law and basically quits the case. And that poses a dilemma for the government. There's a habeas Petition brought by Nancy Hollander, the defense lawyer who took up his case, renowned defense lawyer, and a federal judge orders him released. And even then, even then, the Obama Justice Department appeals the ruling by Judge Robertson that Slahi should be released. Which kept him there for years, years years and years more. I think it was 2010 was the ruling Another by six Robertson. Years. Yeah, six and years. he's not released until uh, October of 2006. And then when they did finally have to release him, the United States government negotiated a deal with the government of Mauritania to withhold Slahi's passport and not to give him visas. So he was not able to travel for many years. Now, I think... He gets permission to leave the country from time to time, um, but I'm not even sure if his passport's been permanently restored. Well, I mean, look, Victoria, you mentioned that uh, there's a Gitmo case before the Supreme Court now. There's going to be Gitmo cases before the Supreme Court decades in the future, I think. I mean, just look at the 9-11 case, which, as I've said before on this podcast, is the biggest single legal fiasco in American history, I believe. It's been 20 years and no sign that we're anywhere close to a trial because of the torture that the CIA uh, conducted against the detainees. And at the end of the day, whatever happens to those people, is going to get appealed. It's going to get appealed to federal court and it will wind up before the Supreme Court years from now. Meanwhile, the iguanas are yeah. perfectly safe in Well, Guantanamo. there's probably Protect, many generations of law. iguanas that will live on and get <laughs> exactly. before this case is resolved. In any case, it is really fascinating. And just one final thing, you know, and our listeners will be able to hear in a moment. Slahi himself, when you talk to him, is such a, a likable, infectious guy. And for, for those who wanted to bring attention to what was done at Guantanamo, it's hard to imagine a a more persuasive and sympathetic spokesman than Muhammadu Slahi. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, he's a writer. He wrote this, uh, published the Guantanamo Diaries. He had kept a diary while he was there. Uh, and I think it was published while he was still in Guantanamo and became a bestseller. Um, and I think that had also had something to do uh, with the reason that he was ultimately 
uh, released because it brought attention to his case. So it was the power of his words, uh, very uh, eloquent words uh, that contributed to this. But most people don't have that power. How many people are still in Guantanamo? I think they're about 40 people still there. Yeah, and the White House says Biden's trying to close it, as Obama did, but it doesn't look like we're anywhere close. In fact, just this week, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on the future of Gitmo, and nobody from the administration even showed up. Not DOJ, not TOD, nobody from the White House, nobody. And Durbin, Dick Durbin, the committee's chairman, was, as he said, quite disappointed about this. Yeah, well, uh, they didn't show up because a lot of them were in the Obama administration, and they remember <laughs> what a total and complete morass the politics of Guantanamo uh, was at the time. And I'm guessing they are, you know, thinking the same way that the Obama administration did um, after they realized that there was going to be as much political opposition to to uh, closing Guantanamo as there was. They don't want to be distracted. You know, it's they called it triage at the time. Back then, it was all about getting uh, health care passed. Now it's about getting Build Back Better uh, passed. They, they don't want to be distracted. And I, I will say the Obama's advisors at the time, they predicted that Guantanamo uh, was going to be open for a very long time. In fact, I was looking at my uh, my book, Killer Capture, which might be remaindered, but I think you can still get it somewhere. <laughs> I'm sure it's uh, on and, Amazon. It's or- <laughs> your local and library. The, the, literally, yeah. the, the last line of the book is a, a top Obama advisor uh, back then who is now in the Biden administration. And I'll read you what he said. Decades, he said, uh, Guantanamo is going to be like Spandau Prison, where they kept the Nazis after World War II. Uh, Decades from now, there may be only one toothless terrorist left, but the prison will still be open for business. Well, it's about a decade since then, because that was in 2012, and there are still 39 Guantanamo detainees. Uh, I'm guessing uh, that was a pretty prophetic quote from that particular person. So if I can also add, one of the other things that the hearing really illuminated is the continuing political quagmire that this is, because although Durbin was clearly pushing for Guantanamo to be shut down, there was strong counter-argument for Republicans who are clearly intent upon keeping it open. Lindsey Graham, in the middle of the hearing, says something like, I want to hold them as long as it takes to keep us safe. To the 39 at Gitmo, I believe all of them are a threat. There is a strong contingent of people who want to keep Guantanamo open and are going to push to keep it open. And of course, Lindsey Graham was the key Republican all the way back during the Obama administration when they were trying to obstructing efforts to close Guantanamo. Okay, well, on this uh, deja vu note, let's talk to somebody who actually lived in Gitmo, uh, not at all pleasantly, our guest, Mohamedou Slahi. So let's get to it. We are now joined by the former detainee 760, a.k.a. Mohamedou Uld Slahi. Mohamedou, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Your reputation preceded you, and you are everything Nancy said and more. <laughs> well, I don't know exactly what Nancy Hollander, your lawyer, told you, um, but we'll... 
<laughs> with the more part. You have had uh, one of the most remarkable, harrowing experiences of anybody caught up in the 20-year war on terror since 9-11. And I want to go through your story for our listeners, but as you sit today, a free man, looking back at your experiences at Guantanamo, what is your chief takeaway? Are you angry? Are you sad? Do you feel that justice has never been done for those who did what they did to you? Give us your thoughts. So I can safely and honestly tell you that I hold no grudge whatsoever and that I am not angry at all. In one of the interviews, they asked one of my guards, they said he was describing the pain I was subjected to, that he was part of. And they asked him whether I was crying. He said, no, he was not crying. He, he passed the crying. And Michael, you need always to understand what are my priorities in life. So is it my priority like to uh, pin myself down on the thought of getting even or getting quote unquote some kind of justice? Or is it my priority to live as a happy person, as a person concentrating on his own life, trying to rebuild his life, or a person who wants to see other people suffer? Because like revenge and getting back is just the suffering of the other person. I have no interest, nor do I have any benefit if Richard Zuli suffered. Richard Zuli was the chief interrogator. He was the one who put uh, into action the program that was sent to him by former Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. And my priority is to be a kind person. And I'm working toward that goal. Well, you certainly uh, come off that way. And um, just one more beat as you um, watched the movie The Mauritanian, which is based on your book, Guantanamo Diary, an international bestseller, I should point out. It was such a powerful movie. Did it accurately represent what happened to you? First, I would like to point out that it was very hard for me to watch the movie. You know, it's like so cringy. And uh, first, I, I had to be very alone when I watched the movie. I didn't want anyone around. And then I couldn't watch it, even when I was alone. It's uh, like when I watch uh, some very crazy host, you know, in uh, Fox News, opinion people. When I watch them, I, I, I watch them very alone because I don't want anyone to see me watching them. But when I ended up watching it, it took at least several months for me to watch it, the whole movie. And then I can say from my point of view that it was very accurate. However, you cannot put in a, a movie 70 days of sleeplessness. The first 70 days from May 23rd to end of August, I counted one day. I counted every day, 70 days, no sleep. This sounds like a lie, but this is on record, you know? I just like was in this 
Well, I'm not even mentioning the beating. I'm not even mentioning the, you know, the threat to my mother, you know. I'm not mentioning the sexual assault that I was subjected to, physical sexual assault. None of the humiliation. I'm just telling you, depriving you of sleep. You cannot put that on a movie. I don't know any actor who would volunteer to uh, stay 70 days with no sleep. So, Mohamedou, you grew up in Mauritania. You get a scholarship to study engineering in Germany. And yet, in December 1990, while you're in Germany, you do travel to Afghanistan to fight with the Mujahideen. And you join what was then a new organization led by Osama bin Laden called Al-Qaeda. Tell us what prompted you to go to Afghanistan at that time, and why did you join Al-Qaeda? So I came out of the hotel, and then I went to my school, to the center, and then I started to discover a new life. Like, I grew up in a military dictatorship. Now in Germany, everybody all of a sudden has a mouth, something that we are not used to. We talk about politics. We can talk about the government. We can criticize the government. I could go to demonstration, mostly demonstration for Palestine, for Afghanistan, and for uh, Iran. And I remember one of the people, the most eloquent people I ever went, whose demonstration I went to were the Iranian people. They were so well, you know, organized. And uh, it was simply very sexy to join these uh, causes. And uh, the, the Afghani, they came to us, uh, mostly to ask for money, because in our mosque, in our cultural centers, because Germany, there were only two religions that were recognized, Catholicism and Protestantism. So Islam was not recognized as a religion, but you could go to cultural centers for Muslim, for Buddhists, for, and then everywhere you could see uh, about Afghanistan. And I really wanted to help the Afghani. I want to join. Then I went to the embassy of the Mujahideen in Bonn. Back then, Bonn was the capital. And I remember Theaterstrasse 12. I remember the street when they gave to me. And uh, I went there and they gave me a visa. And they gave me a visa as a separate, on a separate paper. And uh, I just, you know, I was like a nitwit. And I said, I'm going there. And then I left like my uh, school and I went. I never heard of Al-Qaeda. The name I never heard of. But when I get to Afghanistan, the people were organizing and who were like training the people, they were, they belong to Osama bin Laden, you know. But back then, it will take many years for this organization to be the enemy of the United States, precisely, I think, in 98. About six years after I left Afghanistan, this organization was declared the enemy of the United States of America. Because when I went to Afghanistan, it was not against the law or anything. But after two months, I went there two times in 91-92. And I spent every time like about two months. The last time, it was like a wake-up call when the Mujahideen viciously started to kill each other ruthlessly. And I would say they were worse than the Soviets. With the kind of vengeance and the intensity of killing, it was so disgusting. And I said, I'm not part of this. I don't want to be part of this. And I left Afghanistan 
in uh, I think February 92 or uh, March 92 was the last time I saw anything in Afghanistan and it would take seven years until Afghanistan comes back to me, not because I asked for it, but because it came to me uninvited in the guise of a phone call that I received from my cousin who was a very close friend of Sam Laden. And uh, he asked me to help his father transfer money to his father who was hospitalized in Mauritania. And of course I said, of course I would do that. And uh, little did I know that he was calling me from a phone that was registered under the name of Sam Laden himself. And uh, my life never was the same after this phone call. I was, of course, unaware to take me years to understand the importance of this phone call. That was the crucial piece of evidence that the U.S. government seized upon to conclude yes. that you were part of bin Laden's terror network, that you'd gotten a phone call from your cousin on bin Laden's satellite phone. But they also accused you of recruiting the hijackers for 9-11 when you returned to Germany and you got some visitors, one of whom was Ramzi bin al-Sheib. Tell us what happened during that visit. My friend Mehdi, who is a very good friend of mine, at least was, he was working late night. And he called me, he said, I'm receiving some guests, but... I will not make it before they arrive in Duisburg. Could you please pick them up? He didn't have a car and he was working late. I said, of course. You know, and then I picked them up. I don't know whether I picked them up with my car or they came to me when I gave them the address of my, he was with two people and they came to my home and they stayed. You know, I gave them like dinner, served them dinner and they slept. We didn't talk much and then in the very early, early in the morning, my friend Mehdi came and uh, to pick them up. And I drove the four of them in my car to the uh, train station. That was the only time I saw him. Who were the other two men? I don't know them. I don't know them, but they don't, they are not the hijacker. They showed me the picture. They are other people because they, uh, they told me the theory of the government is that those two, so this is October 99. This needs to be very clear. So this is October 99. So the theory of the government is that in October 99, those two people are, the two other are the hijackers. And uh, my understanding from later on when I saw the documentary is that this couldn't be the case because I think in 98, according to my information, that those people already were in Afghanistan. But that's something different. But one thing which I had forgotten, which is that the 9-11 Commission, relying on Ramzi bin al-Sheib's account under extreme interrogations, said you had helped recruit him and the others to be hijackers on the 9-11 plot. Yeah. <laughs> I read that too. And uh, I can tell you, this is like very chilling uh, that the commission, almost a lot of the information, not only this Abu Zubaydah's two information that were taken 
and a great deal of torture. And I say this because in the case of Ramzi, I met people who were with Ramzi in prison. I just told you about them. They told me about Ramzi. They told me that he was crying all night long. He never stopped crying from pain. He was beaten and they could hear him crying all night long. And it was like so bad for them just to hear him crying and moaning. And uh, it's so like chilling for a country like the United States of America that prides itself as the land of the free to rely on information that taken by torture. Because also under torture, I admitted that I committed atrocities that I didn't commit and I signed this because there was no difference for me to be sentenced to death. All I wanted is for the torture to stop. So, Mohamedou, this is we, we want to get to this part of the story where you were subjected to torture. You made these false confessions. But how did you get to Guantanamo? After Germany, you went back to Mauritania, correct? And your government turned you over to the Jordanians, you, you ended up in Amman, imprisoned by the GID, the Jordanian Intelligence Service, which was working with the CIA. And then what happened? How did you get to Guantanamo? Absolutely, you're right. I just want a little bit to uh, go back to explain to you what led me to be kidnapped. So in 99, after the phone call, I, I was so scared because everywhere I go, the doors were closed. And I was so scared. I didn't want this. I never had any running with the police. I decided to move to Canada, where I already, it was already my plan B if uh, Germany doesn't work, because my friend Hasni already has his uh, landed immigrant status. And he, he told me, Canada is a good place to live. They speak French. I don't need to learn any new language. So I moved to Canada. <laughs> And this was like, I, it, the choice couldn't have been worse because Canada is really bad when it comes to a collusion with the United States of America under the table. You know, Canada threw its own citizen under the bus, you know, to please the United States of America. And I'm not like judging this in any way. I'm not giving it any value judgment, but those are facts. When I went there, as luck had it, one crazy demented person tried to cross the US border in the infamous Millennium Plot and to blow up, I think, LA airport. And the United States of America, you know, the first like thing they that jumped to them, okay, Mohammed, we know Mohammed was involved in something. He was in Germany. Now he's in Canada, and now a, a guy is is crossing the border, so he must be guilty. And Canadian, you know, did everything. They harassed me, they put like listening devices in my apartment that I discovered. And uh, I remember calling the police and I told them my neighbor put listening device in my apartment. I showed them the, the, the boring through the wall and the device that came through. And then they went and they called, did some call and they came back to me. They said, ah, this was a mistake. He was just trying to hang some paintings. And I was like painting like 
two feet above the ground, that makes no sense. And I told them, give me your number, give me your, your ID, everything. I said, okay, okay, wait. And then they went outside, they said, okay, the neighbor, it was a mistake. We told the neighbor not to do it anymore. So the US and Mauritania and Canada decided that I couldn't be arrested in Canada because there was no evidence. So I need to be lured away in a place where there is where there is no law, and then they could arrest me. So they made a plan. They talked to my mother through the Mauritanian intelligence. Then they asked her to call me and say that she is sick and that I need to come back home. But exactly what my mother did. They told her he's in, in a lot of trouble. If he doesn't come back, he may be arrested and you may be put in a prison very far away from home. My mother called me and I packed and I purchased my ticket. All my friends told me, this is a ruse. The US wants to kidnap you. I said, I don't care. My mother called me, I'm joining my mother. And then on my way to Mauritania in Dakar, this very city where I sit, I was kidnapped in the airport. I was interrogated and uh, Excuse me, how were you kidnapped? So I was taken from the airport. My family was waiting on the airport with a, a car to drive me from Dakar back to Mauritania. And they took me from the airport. So and they interrogated me for five days and they gave me to the Americans. So, but Americans did not take me to America. They took me to Mauritania for interrogation. And you mean they, Jordan. they interrogated me. They, they, took you to, they took you to Jordan. No, no, to Mauritania. To First Mauritania. to Mauritania. First to Mauritania, yeah. Mauritania, yes. They interrogated me. And then Mauritania, you know, Mauritanians are like <laughs> rather direct. You know, they, they are not as sophisticated as the FBI. They came back to me and said, American did not give us any evidence against you. We don't know what to do. But they told us to take away your passport. This was not America where you have to, you, this can only be done through a judge. I never seen a judge in my life in Mauritania. And they took my passport, you know, after uh, one month. And then uh, they left me there until 9-11 happened. And then after 9-11, they arrested me again. I was interrogated many times, not many times. Uh, a couple of times by Mauritanians and by uh, Americans. And then uh, I remember the very last, the, the day they took me, I came back 4 p.m. from work. I was working. It was November 20th. And uh, I came back and when I came back home, it was only my mother. And uh, those two men came, I know them because the, the, uh, one of them was my guard in the secret prison, and one of them was, was one of the interrogators. And my mom recognized them, even though they did not introduce themselves, but she recognized them. She, she knew that they were not good people. They couldn't have been good people. And she told me, I know why they want you. I said, why? She said, because you watch the news. I told you not to watch the news. And uh, I was laughing. And then I said, uh, Inshallah, it's, it's not going to be bad. I mean, they just going to ask me question and I will come back for iftar. That was in Ramadan, like breaking off fast. 
And uh, I could see my mother holding the prayer beads and praying frantically through the rear view mirror until she disappeared from the view. Back then, I did not know this would be the very last time I ever see my mother alive. You know, after many years, they came to me to Guantanamo Bay, in Guantanamo Bay, and told me that my mother passed away. I never forget the pain. You know, I cannot describe it because you are a writer. Both of you are writers. But there are things that you cannot write, you know, because you cannot write the burning in your heart. You cannot convey that. You cannot convey that weakness when you cannot stand up. You know, you can only lie down because you don't have the power to sit or stand up, you know. And uh, so they took me to the, they, I spent some days and then the chief, the police chief came to me said, we are going to send you to Jordan. It's like, I don't know, it's like you blow me a thousand times in the face at the same time and you stab me hundred times in my stomach and thousand times in my back and you still would not inflict that kind of pain and disappointment because what do I have to do with Jordan? I never been to Jordan. I'm not a Jordanian citizen. You know, if the United States of America wants me, they can take me to the US. But no, because there is no evidence against me because I haven't committed any crime. So the crime I committed has to come from me. I have to admit to a crime that is in the fantasy of some agent under an AC in Washington. You know, and this is exactly, you know, this is this tendency of uh, this uh, fascist tendency really need to stop. You know, after this 9-11, when the United States of America said, everybody in this world is game. Only American citizens are not game. This is fascism. But more than that, a lot of American people would say, oh, this is good for us because we are untouchable. You know, as it turned out, American citizens are also touchable because they accepted that people like me, people who are born in Africa, who are born in the Middle East, are game and they don't deserve to be treated within the rule of law. They don't deserve to be treated uh, as an equal human being. And uh, so in 2002, after being held in Jordan, you get flown to Guantanamo Bay presumably another place you've never been before, like Jordan. I was happy because what I know about America is, uh, is the movies I watched, like Married with Children, Law and Order. So I know American people are very humorous and they respect the law. So I, I wasn't afraid of America. So when I came to them, I was very happy. I told the FBI, you know, I'm cooperating with you. I have nothing to hide. And they told me also, we are not going to torture you. They told me that the first day. And I was really happy. So I, I said, this is a big misunderstanding. And just, they will ask me a question and then they will let me go home. Even I want to stay in the US. This is how stupid I was. This is Michael, the result of ignorance because 
I did not know the United States of America. You know, I thought this is some kind of uh, uh, European liberal democracy, you know, a small country where the law is very clear. If you didn't break the law, you go home. Not in America. You can spend the rest of your life, even if you did not break the law, in prison. And uh, especially if you are Arab or Muslim or black or Mexican or poor white guy. So, and then, you know, like, but that was getting very repetitive, the interrogation. And then I decided, you know what? I'm not talking to you. I know my rights. I don't have to talk to you. You are the one who have to provide me with the evidence and the, you charge me with a crime. And unless you do that, I'm not going to talk to you ever. And then I started. This was your biggest mistake, thinking that you were living in a place governed by the rule of law. You were sent there because specifically it was not going to be governed by the rule Absolutely. of law. Absolutely. I was so dumb because, because like I was thinking, American, if they are in Jordan or if they are in, they still bound by the rule of law. You know why? Because I based this on. Uh, you know, like I grew up in a military dictatorship, the rules are clear. The government, the president decides whether you're guilty or not. Then I moved to Germany. The law decides whether you're guilty or not. Then I moved to America and I didn't know, I was confused. Who decides about your guilt? Turns out everyone and no one, you know? And it's so, it's like a quagmire because it was, Michael, this was like, the most eerie moment when I was in my first hearing, because the discussion in my hearing was the explanation, interpretation of AUMF. What did American president means when he says so-and-so? I was saying, what the fuck do I have to do with all of this? I am an, a Mauritanian citizen. I'm not an American citizen. I did not choose to come to your country. I was feeding my family, sitting in the end of the world, and your president decides about my lot. What kind of country is this? What kind of world is this? And I was insignificant in that courtroom because this was like... Tell us what happened once Donald Rumsfeld gave the order for you to be subjected to those special measures. I was very hard-headed first. They told me, look, if you don't cooperate with us, we will torture you. And then I said, I remember this, the sooner the better. And I was, very, because I, I was calling their bluff because I did not believe them. If I believed them, I would have talked to them. I said always, the sooner the better, because I read it in a book. And uh, so, they came to me and the FBI disappeared. It was, uh, uh, it was uh, uh, Chris and, uh, and Rob Seidler. Rob Seidler is from San Diego. And uh, they were removed by the uh, FBI. And then a new team came. The team consisted of a, a DOD, I think uh, CIA and... Uh, Another contractors, you know, those are contractors. Those are like people who are contracted by the government and then they just tell them to get their intelligence. They worked for private uh, companies. Like the team leader, uh, Richard Zuli, was a retired cop from Chicago who had 
some kind of record that qualified him to uh, uh, lead the torture teams in Guantanamo Bay. So Richard, I mean, they came to me, they said, you know, no more playing games. I remember their vocabulary. You need to come clean. You need to come forth. Something like that. And I was always saying, no, I'm not telling you anything. You, I don't care who you are. If you charge me with a crime, I talk to you. If you don't charge me, I'm not talking to you. Then when they start the torture, I remember one day I almost died because they put me in this uh, fridge. And I'm telling you, like, when I say the fridge, people don't understand this because my co-detainee, my former co-detainee, Gur Rahman, did not survive the fridge. He, did, he died in the fridge. It was too cold. And I remember these days, this Marine guy, he was like, I was in the fridge and he was pouring water over me. And I didn't wear, I wore only thin uniform and I was so cold, but I really wanted him to stop. I wanted to talk, but I couldn't talk. And he thought I was being like resistive, but I wasn't resistive at that moment. I want to talk, but I couldn't because my, my lips couldn't move. And my tongue, it was like a, a stone. And uh, I remember Staff Sergeant Mary saving my life because she told him to stop. Because from that point, when uh, hypothermia set in, I was going to die very quickly. Mohamedou, there was also, you mentioned Mary, there were also female interrogators who sought to humiliate you and break down your faith. What did they do to you? So that was also Mary. She was also one of the, when I say she saved my life, she also assaulted me sexually. So I think after maybe 30 days, they introduced like sexual assault. And uh, I remember the first day, it was like contact, first like contact with clothes, then it was like full contact, like, and uh, I was very stupid because as a young man, I didn't care because my other, one of the co-detainee came back from the blood, from interrogation, he was crying. And we asked him, why you cry? He said, they assaulted me sexually. And me and another detainee, Tunisian detainee, were laughing, said, so what? You are a guy, you are not a girl. And I was so stupid saying that, that in a way Allah showed me that this kind of humiliation is really bad whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, it doesn't matter your sexual orientation. If someone forces you to do something so intimate that you don't want to do, it's going to scar you for the rest of your life. And then they, she came to me one day, she said, we are going to bring this woman. And she gave her some kind of description. You know, she described a very big breast and a very attractive look. And then she brought her because part of me was very curious. How does this woman look? This is very dark, but you are a writer too. And you really want to know what's going on. And then I was like, okay, I want to see this woman with this thing, but I don't want her to assault me. And that woman came. Well, it was a disappointment because she was not attractive. No more, you know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and of course, yeah, the the the, the old the, bait and switch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and then she came to me. I, I wasn't talking, so I was just like a stone. 
but I was intently listening. And then she told me today, we'll show you the American sex, uh, the American way of doing sex that you never seen in Yemen. I was like, okay, what do I have to do with Yemen? I never been even to Yemen. So, but this showed me how insignificant the world means to those people who are fighting this battle in this part of the world, to her. And there is no difference between Yemen, Turkey, Bosnia, the, the United Kingdom. We are the same people, you know. In the movie, they're wearing cat masks, the women. Were they in real life? And tell us exactly when you say sexual assault, what they did. Well, I'm not going to start my porn flick here, but uh, so the sexual assault happened on three different occasions. Okay, the first one consists of like uh, stripping and uh, uh, physical contact that you didn't, you don't want. And so you have, you are forced. If you resist, so they beat you, so they hold you. And the second assault was with three people at the same time, a guy and two women. And uh, so, but it was contact, but through clothes. And the third one was stripping completely your clothes away. And then a guy and a woman. But in, in no instance was there any, any penetration in any orifice, you know? And uh, it was very painful, I can tell you that. And, uh, and I don't wish this on anyone. And I can only tell the young men out there who think that sexual assault is only harmful to women, that is very harmful to men. And I would say maybe more knowing my own situation because, you know, still to this day, I, I have a lot of issues and problems. When people touch me, you know, when people close to me touch me, I don't want them to get close to me. And... Uh, and uh, I mean, were the women wearing masks? That's a, another question. Not all the time, but uh, at certain point in time, all the men, all the women were wearing mas masks, especially men. You know, but like in the movie, Mary was not wearing any mask, counter to what in the movie. But when I talked to them, they said uh, they they just want to give the idea that at some point. The guards and the, the guard wore masks. At some point, they take you for a boat ride. Tell Correct. us about that. I remember that. So Richard Zuli was talking always through his interrogators, and I never met him. Up to that point, he, uh, he always worked from uh, the one-sided mirror room, and I remember after 70 days, he came to me, you know, he, gave, he handed me a letter. He said, this is a letter stating that my mother would be kidnapped and he insinuated that she would be raped. And the only way to stop that from happening is for me to confess to my quote unquote crimes. I was floored, honestly. I didn't know what to say, you know, because like, I was getting to the getting used to the humiliation for 70 days now, the beating, 
and the sleep deprivation, I had no feeling. But this is the first time that I had like a feeling like a stab through my heart. And I knew I had, the, I, the, there is no, nothing anymore to, to fight for. So I wanted to say anything, everything, whatever he wants, I want to sign. And uh, but I couldn't talk. I couldn't talk. And then he went and then he, uh, he said that as this uh, show in the movie, I was sitting with, I don't know, one day or two days after this meeting, I was sitting with Mary. She gave me like, you know, she gave me some, this uh, amari, me ready to eat, some of it. They don't give you the whole thing. Then I was eating, I think, crackers. Then all of a sudden, this team came to me and they almost beat me to death because I couldn't breathe anymore. And uh, I was only <laughs> all the time. And uh, that's when they like uh, pour this water that you see in movies over my face to make me like feel like I'm drowning. And, uh, and I almost died because of salt water because I couldn't throw it up. And uh, they keep beating me. There were like at least two teams, one Jordanian, one Egyptian, based on the accent, because I couldn't see anything, because they spoke Arabic, their English was very bad. And then an another American team, and they just, one team give me to the next. So the, the American teams just beat me, they broke my ribs. The Arab teams, they also like beat me, but mostly on my face and also on my rib. And then they, they pour ice over me, which was like, it's very like, in a way, very uh, intelligent and evil at the same time, because it helps like the bruise right away to go down and they, they beat you again. And you know, the worst thing, like I could say, I could tell that the Arab team was much more uh, trained to torture because it was very efficient in a way that it was very methodical, you know? And uh, mind you, I was not asked to say anything. This was just for free beating and torturing for free. And then, and then I lost like, I must have lost conscious for, this was like 23rd August, 23rd of August. And then the first time I remember anything after that, October 14th. October 14th or October 10th, I don't remember, because I saw a watch. And uh, yeah, and I, I remember like waking up like one day, I don't know when, and then I told them I want Captain Collins to come. Captain Collins was an angel to me because he was the only one who could stop the torch. He came to me and I said, I want to come clean, I want to confess to everything. Mohamedou, I want to stop you there for one second because you have said something fascinating that I'd never thought about before, which is you had to prolong uh, this torture because you couldn't just make up a whole story immediately. You had to actually think through what the story would be since it was all false, the details, right? Tell us about that. 
I mean, so I made my confession, I think in October. Of what year? 2003? Three, three, three. So I wrote my confession. And so I've been interrogated continuously with no interruption, no interruption, almost every day from November 2001, more than two years, uninterrupted interrogation every day. <laughs> I have an idea of what the uh, interrogator wants to hear. And beside that, uh, First Sergeant Charlie told me what I should confess to, because it seems like they didn't really, the community was not, did not agree that I was part of 9-11 or part of Millennium Plan. So they have to come up with something that didn't happen that I confessed to. They, and he told me, oh, what if you try to blow up CN Tower? I never heard of CN Tower in my life. And uh, I said, yes, I tried to blow up CN Tower. That's in, in Toronto or where, where is that? In Toronto, he yeah. told me in Toronto. And this would solve every problem there is because all my friends could have been part of this. All like the uh, phone calls, like tea and sugar, they told me I was talking about tea and sugar. I could say this was explosive when I say tea and sugar. And that's exactly what I told them. All my friends could have been part of this fictional non-existent uh, plot. Unfortunately, in your country, if you think that you are going to attack the embassy in Waukesha, it's the same thing as if you attack the embassy in Waukesha. And uh, this is why, guys, guys, terrorism should not be a crime in a democracy. Terrorism cannot be a crime philosophically in a democracy because one is used by dictatorships to oppress innocent people who just ask for change. Two, there is no unanimous definition that agreed upon among the countries what is terrorism. Three, every country has its own terrorists that are not considered terrorists in the other country. So this is all, this is all bad for uh, the name of the crime of terrorism. I am not saying that there are no real victims of the, for uh, this political motivated violence that also committed by Muslims, people I belong to. All I'm saying is that terrorism cannot be philosophically a, a true crime in a democracy. The other day I was discussing with Nancy and she was telling me that one of her uh, defendant, a Muslim man convicted of terrorism for the rest of his life, he was, she, she was telling me about him. And I was so upset because she really believed in his innocence. I said, why don't you go to uh, like these people in the US, like uh, innocence projects? And then just, I thought how dumb I was. Innocence projects can only exonerate you if you did a crime because a measurable crime where there is DNA, where there is like 
real witness. But in terrorism, you don't need DNA. In terrorism, you don't need a crime to have happened, you know? So you can never be exonerated of terrorism because it's not a crime that can be measured. What, what, would, you, what would you call the 9-11 attacks? I call this murder, mass murderer. They should not be hailed as a, a political people with cause. They should be tried as a, a petty, horrific murderer. That's it. We should not celebrate them. We should not give them a status, you know. I think what Mohamedou is saying, right, is that that obviously was a a mass murder, but in in the war on terror, people could be the government could say you were involved in terrorism. It's all secret. We're not going to show any evidence, and you can't disprove it. It's Orwellian. That's kind of what happened to Mohamedou. Right. Um, tell us now. At some point, you renounce your written confession as being completely made up lies that you told or wrote to stop the torture. At what point do you do that? And what prompted you to come forward and say, I just told you a bunch of lies? <laughs> uh, I just want to add a little bit about uh, terrorism. I'm not saying that these people, crazy demented people, are harming innocent human beings in the name of religion or ideology. I'm not saying that. Only I'm only saying that it's hurting us, that people cannot ask for democracy and human rights, especially in my part of the world, because they're labeled terrorists when they do that. And America can say nothing because they said, you have your own terrorists. Why you tell, tell us about our terrorists, you know? So we are terrorists. So why don't you put them on trial? You don't put your terrorists on trial. Terrorists don't deserve to be put on trial. That's all I'm saying, you know? So going to your, uh, your question. So when I put my confession as a mass murderer, or at least a wannabe mass murderer, I was a good guy all of a sudden. They come to me, they brought me cookies. I remember Newton cookies. I never see these cookies before. Very good, you eat them, they give you tea. And I was a man with a status. All of a sudden, I was not a bad guy. And they were talking to me nicely. They told me I'm going to receive death penalty. And I cannot explain to you the eerie feeling as they explained to me what, is death, was, what death penalty meant knowing in my heart that I didn't do anything to deserve death penalty. But the icing, you know, they told me because you are cooperating, if you give us more people, we can take away death penalty and give you 30 years. I didn't have any comment because I didn't know whether to say thank you very much or to say to negotiate even more or to choose death penalty rather than 30 years. So they came to me, they said, we know you are telling us the truth, but we want to put you on lie detector. I was horrified because I know the lie detector will eliminate my confession because I'm electrical engineering. 
uh, I studied electrical engineering and I know how this machine works. And I know I was raised, you know, in Muslim faith, everything is forbidden. If you lie, it's forbidden. If you look at a woman with lust, it's forbidden. If you don't pray, it's forbidden. If you don't fast, it's forbidden. So anything I know, it's a little bit morally wrong, it will show. And then I was negotiating, you know, I told you, why you put me on the machine? They told me, Richard told me that very higher up people want me to be put. And then later on, I knew that there was a very big fight between the agencies because FBI, CIA, and other agencies said, Muhammad did not do any of this. We know that he didn't do it. And uh, later on, we know that because I saw the, the report of the prosecutor when he met CIA, FBI, DOD, they told him there is no evidence Muhammad did anything. And then uh, they brought me this, uh, this was like, I think in November. And then they brought me this guy and I was shaking. And then I passed the test. And then he came back to the team. Richard Zuli was very angry. He said, you go back and do the test again. And then they did the test one more time. And I passed the test. I told them I didn't do anything. I was only lying, but I can assure you I'm a bad guy, but I didn't do any of this. And I was just so nervous, you know? And after I cleared myself of every wrongdoing, you know, their life, they started to change my life, you know, a little bit, you know, they allowed me to sleep. You know, they allowed me to talk to the guard. They removed the mask of the guard you know, slowly, slowly, but they made one decision that I could never, ever see the outside of a, of a, of a, of a cell for the rest of my life. I know that because just the other day I was discussing with a, a former government official who was negotiating my release with the American. They told him I was not releasable. Why? I do believe that at that point in time, I was a witness to very heavy war crimes that was committed by uh, uh, members of the US government under the color and authority of this country. Which brings up a larger question that comes out of your story, which is, we still have detainees at Guantanamo some of whom were subjected to torture similar to yours. Now, some of them, there's good reason to believe, were, in fact, terrorists, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi bin al-Sheib, and the rest. But the government has had a hell of a job trying to bring them to trial for the last, you know, 20 years because of what was done to them similar to what was done to you. What should happen to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi bin Ashib, and the rest who were, we believe, involved and directly orchestrated 9-11? How does this legal dilemma, which has plagued the government for years now, how can it ever be resolved? What would you like so, to see happen? So, Michael, I'm in contact with uh, some of the victims of 9-11. They're my friends. And uh, I 
I, uh, we do some time like Zoom calls and 20 years on, 20 years on, not one single person was successfully brought to justice to uh, give a closure to the victims of 9-11. 20 years on, after so much money was put into this, not one single person faced a real, not kangaroo trial, a real trial, you know, and was faced with the victims and they looked into his face and talked to him and told him how much they, uh, he or she hurt them. But war crimes were committed, you know, and this shows you uh, the success or the lack thereof of this operation like uh, uh, like war against terror. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people in the US government. I mean, CIA, FBI, DOD, contractors, they all interrogated me. And they seem to have this like very twisted opinion, some of them, that America is better off if it wasn't a democracy. And I couldn't disagree more. That's why you, you see them like, bringing people from very distasteful dictatorships, you know, to interrogate their detainees. Because they would say, you know, those people, they go down and dirty without gloves. You know, but we know through history and we know from experience that democracies are safer and democracies more prosperous than dictatorships. And hey, Mohamedou, I'm fascinated by what you said a moment ago about the, that you have been having conversations uh, with the families of the victims of 9-11. How did that come to be? And describe what some of those conversations have been like. So, you know, I'm like very public about who I am and my story. And then uh, some of the family, they reach out to me and we became good friends. Like we love each other, really, really, you know? And I, I let them to announce who they are. And, uh, but I, I think, you know, we, we appeared on uh, some uh, Zoom call that are recorded. And uh, for instance, families of 9-11, I'm friend of them and I, I did, I, I held some uh, events with them. And those people are hurt. I, I, I think my mother and myself, were victims of 9-11, not only the people who perished. And this was a real tragedy, you know, and it was like, I don't know how, what to say, you know, I don't know really what to say, but I wished America had won the war, but America had lost this morally when they said they will abandon the rule of law. I hate to be persistent, but I'm not sure I got an answer, Mohamedou, to my question, what would you advise happen to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the other accused 9-11 terrorists? Yeah. So first, with all due respect, I love you and I respect you. I will not adapt your language. Meaning, Granted, terrorists. I, I right. will not. The I perpetrators not, of the people we believe to be the perpetrators of 9-11. Correct. Correct. That's the, the, uh, the uh, alleged, you know, mm -hmm. the correct. alleged criminals. You know, because I don't want to use terrorism because terrorism is political term. I get it. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, Hamas is a terrorist group in your country, but in 
in many other countries, they are not terrorist groups. So who's to say? And uh, I love it also, as we talk about this, that in the US, you cannot designate a group as a terrorist group in your country. And I agree with that because it's a political term. But your government can designate me and other people outside the US as terrorist group, which is, <laughs> I don't understand. Anyway, so I do believe that America has one of the modern oldest justice system in the world that is functioning, that has a lot of money poured into it. They should take anyone who is alleged of those heinous crimes to court in America and let them face the music and be tried in front of everyone. It's like a civilian court, not a military commission in Guantanamo. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. They tried that. <laughs> and uh, wow. unfortunately, the politics of it made it impossible to do. Or the but, will, no, or the okay, will, uh, the lack of will made it impossible. Yeah, I, I'm just, I'm just saying. All I'm saying, I'm coming back to a point that the tendency by some of the people in the government that democracy doesn't work. That's why they say our system don't work. I would say that no, democracy works. The rule of law works. You know, and, uh, and they just saying no. We are, they are why are they afraid of uh, going to court? Because this this will like uh, put America in its place, the the leader of the free world. How can we be the leader of the free world if you don't respect the yeah. law of law? Mohammed, I, I was also interested when you said that you were described by some of your interrogators later on as a witness because you were a witness to what was done to you, to the torture that the U.S. government engaged in. In fact, you are exhibit A of the case for why torture doesn't work, and it only produces confessions that are, or often produces confessions that are simply false, uh, merely because the subject wants to stop the torture that's being done to him. Would you be willing, or have you discussed actually testifying at the 9-11 trials about the lack of reliability of torture. So, so you know, you are a journalist. You, you always question stuff. That's what you learn. So I'm not a journalist, but life taught me to question everything. You know, I'm not anymore like as my grandma taught me, good people always, you know, receive good stuff. Bad people always receive bad stuff. I don't believe in that. So I believe that I should be a kind person and I should always do the right thing, but it doesn't mean that I would always get the right thing. So I will question what to, the, so the premise, there are a lot of premises in this question. So when you say torture works and works and doesn't work, this to me is very dark because it's meaning if we have like empirical uh, information that torture works, let's torture people to save life. If it doesn't work, I don't agree with that. I think that torture is morally wrong. Even if torture saved life, even if torture is the best practice that we could come up with, you know, because the torture is taken someone who is not criminal, who was not, <laughs> and we torture them, you know, just because there is the, the the promise of maybe we're gonna get information. That said, 
I can only talk about my own experience. When I was tortured, I wanted only to please my interrogator. If they told me I was on Mars, I would tell them I was on Mars. If they told me you were the hijacker, you died on, uh, on one of the plane, I would tell them I died on the plane because I cannot think correctly. My brain cannot process correctly. You know, it's so it's like a cloud in my brain. And I think only like what's happened in the next second. That's what I care about. I don't care about death penalty. I don't care about spending the rest of my life. I just want the pain to freaking stop. No, I, I get that. But I think the, the, the issue that I was trying to focus on with that question was, as I understand it, and a central issue in the 9-11 case is that some of these people did confess to FBI teams after they were tortured. And what the defense lawyers are arguing is you can't rely on anything that was said by somebody who was subjected to this kind of horrific treatment. So your account and what you just said right now might be powerful testimony that would support what the defense lawyers are trying to argue in the military commission cases. So, uh, Michael, I really want to tell you something. You know, a lot of people speak positively about FBI in this war on terror. FBI is not innocent. That's numero uno. I'm not talking about generalities. I'm talking about my experience. So FBI are only smarter than like, let's say contractors, because FBI know how to save their asses. So what FBI did to me, so they interrogated me for six months and they told me, Muhammadu, Muhammadu, if you don't cooperate, you are going to be tortured. So they know I was going to be tortured. And they completely abandoned their duty of like saving me from torture. And they gave me to the torture team. When I was tortured, they came back smiling with a very nice suit. Of course they don't torture. And sat with me and I was pouring to them information with nonstop. Anything they told me, I said, yes, anything. That's exactly what they did also with the CIA. So you're, you're making the case that the defense lawyers are trying to make in the, uh, in the Gitmo trials, that you just cannot, once somebody's been subjected to what you were subjected to, anything they would say afterwards is going to be unreliable. That's, that's, I, this is so obvious to me that it doesn't even know. This is, you don't have a lawyer. You don't have anyone. You are in the same place where you've been tortured and there is no clean, what they say, clean team. That's the dirtiest team. I respect CIA and the contractor more than FBI because those contractors, yeah, they said, we torture you. FBI said, we don't torture. But we just ask you a question. We want to be honest. You come clean. And if you don't, you are going away and another team will come. That's what FBI says. And FBI is the worst when it comes to this war on terror. They completely abandon, you know, the, the, the rule of law. And instead of saying, you know what? You don't deserve to be tortured because we are a country that does not torture people, you know? And instead of reporting it and stopping the people, they just like just role playing 
Good cop, bad cop. I would say bad cop, worse cop. Some in the FBI did resist engaging in torture. Uh, Ali Soufan, for instance, um, who has been quite outspoken about that and appears in this new documentary about Abu Zubaydah, another Gitmo detainee who was subjected to extreme measures such as yours. So it's about that, about that. Again, I will question everything. So look, 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 look. Let's not, not get like carried away by anything. Look, look. I appreciate all the good people who spoke against uh, torture. But <laughs> you speak about something to stop it. You, you, they could have stopped this, but they did not. They came along and then it was sexy to talk about it, sexy to leak information when everything was said and done. I'm not saying I would be a hero. I don't think I'm a hero. I would, because it's very comfortable to be with the FBI people. It's very comfortable to be with the US. It's very comfortable to be with the CIA because the money is good and the protection is good. And at the end of the day, those are some Arab and Middle Eastern people who gives a fuck about them. You know, I mean, just we need to be, you need to be honest to ourselves. I think we can lie to everyone, but we cannot lie to ourselves. Mohamedou, I want to end up where we began. We started this conversation at, and you said that you don't hold grudges against anyone. And you're of obviously a very nice and lovely man. And it seems to me that in a place where you were dehumanized or where the United States government did everything they possibly could do to dehumanize you, you found some humanity. You needed to find humanity. I mean, you, we haven't talked about him, but your, one of your guards, Steve Wood, ended up becoming one of the people who testified on your behalf and said that he would take you in as his guest and then there's the prosecutor, who I, I don't know if you ever met him, um, but he is one of the main characters in the Mauritania in the movie, Stuart Couch, who was pursuing the death penalty against you and wanted to avenge the murder of his friend who was one of the pilots on, on one of those pl planes on 9-11. He began to sp suspect that you were being tortured. When he found out what had happened, he withdrew from the case. What are the lessons there in finding humanity in such a terrible, terrible place? I think, uh, first, I really want to, to get something out of the way. I, I tell you a secret. A lot of people really don't believe that I don't hold any grudge. And they're wrong. And I tell you why. Because when I was taken from Jordan by the CIA, it occurred to me I would never go back home. I would die in an American prison, sad and alone. And I started to regret things in my life. I tell you what I didn't regret. I did not regret not having those very hot girls that always wanted. I did not regret not having money. I did not regret not having a, a Swiss banking account. I regretted only one thing in my life, not being nice enough to the people around me, my mother, my sisters, my brothers, my partner, my friends. And I took it upon myself to be a nice person. 
and to to I, I took a vow of kindness no matter what. And you you cannot have a vow of kindness without forgiving people, because this is what mattered to me. I'm so selfish. I want to feel good, you know, and that's my way to feel good. So, and that's actually related to your question, because I, I didn't see the guards as my enemy. I mean, when Richard Zuli came to me, said, "You are the enemy of the United States of America." This I was like. When did I decide that to be the enemy? I didn't decide that. He decided that for me. Because I want to be friend with everybody because it's good for me. Because when I come to your city, you are my friend. You provide me, you show me places, you show me where to eat. You know, it's good for me. You know, It's good for us to cooperate in life. And, uh, and you know, we need America in Africa. We need America in the Middle East. We need American people to promote human rights in, uh, in everywhere. And uh, so uh, all I'm saying is that I am a man of letter. All since my childhood, I was only reading and writing and studying. That's what I know. And I cannot do that and try to find enemies everywhere because I don't believe in that. I believe that we all uh, more or less the children of God, the children of the same parents, and we should cooperate and be brothers and sisters. Well said. Mohamedou, uh, tell our listeners, what are you doing now? This very moment, I'm here in Dakar, <laughs> enjoying the weather, I'm, and I'm waiting on uh, my visa because I'm going to the Netherlands. I have a play uh, called Freedom that is hope, hopefully it was successful and I'm going there to help them like program. We want to go to uh, all the cities and if you allow us to come to the US, we will also go there and uh, play in the theaters. It's very good. It's, it's uh, A-list uh, play. This is a play, a play that you've written? Yes, a play I've written, you just go Google uh, Freedom, Muhammadul Slahi, you will see it and you will see the performance. Like uh, they don't show everything, but they show you and we perform only live. If you need a formal invitation, you hereby have one from Yahoo News um, thank you to so come much. to America. Thank I you. really want to thank you for joining us. It's been a, a truly fascinating and important discussion. And um, I've got one last word for you that will only mean something to people who have seen the movie. Mohamedou, um, see you later, alligator. <laughs> yeah, after a while, crocodile. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot. A really uh, fascinating discussion. I loved it.